Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. And so there's a lot of visitors or some folks I haven't seen for a while. It is a joy to have you today. And I need to preface a couple of things here. First of all, you're stepping in to the middle of a sermon series. Okay, so you're like, he sounds like he was talking about this before. Yes, we were. We've been doing a brief sermon series on the windows in the church. And the second thing I need to say, especially to those who may be new here today, is that I want to apologize for my voice. All right, I spent most of my day yesterday at the uh, Jersey Field Day, okay, where I will say again that... St. Mary's has got to have more awards in Jersey per capita than any church in the United States, and for this, we are unapologetically proud, okay? And so yesterday was another wonderful day, but a lot of dust, a lot of yelling, speaking over speakers, all that kind of stuff. I feel a little froggy this morning. If you're like, he doesn't sound right, it's because I'm not, and that's okay. And the third thing I need everyone to know is I have some bad news for you this morning, because... As I was going through these windows, and particularly what we're going to do today, I learned something. And when preachers learn something, they want to tell everybody everything they learned. And so I'm trying to do everything I can to shrink it down. But I've got the enthusiasm for what we're going to do today of myself when I was a little kid. Going back to the dairy farmer story, you all appreciate this. For those who don't know, I grew up on a dairy farm. And I remember it was like kindergarten, first grade. We took this field trip to go see a dairy farm. I had never been on anybody else's dairy farm. I had only been on my own. I just, you know, so we go, and I remember being fascinated. They're like, there are cows, and they look different than ours. And there's a parlor, and it looks different than ours. And so I came home with all the enthusiasm of a June day, and it's 100 degrees, and I bounced down into our dairy farm, into the parlor, and I looked at my mother, and I said, did you know we live on a dairy farm? The little kid who wants to share everything, that's how I feel this morning. So I'm going to try not to do that, but I am excited about what we're doing this morning because I hope you all will learn something as well. Last week, we tackled the two windows in the middle over there, the cross with the branches, I am the vine, you are the branches, and the anchor, that Jesus roots us deeper than even we root ourselves. Jesus is is an anchor for the soul. And today, I want to tackle... The four gospel windows that are spread throughout the sanctuary on on all sides. And if you're like, what are these gospel things? So here we have an image for St. Luke. The next one, we have an image for St. John. In the back, if my eyesight serves me, it's St. Matthew. On my right, your left. And finally, we have an image of St. Mark. Do I have this right? Okay, good. And I knew these images for the Gospels have been the images from time immemorial. I just never bothered to look them up. And, but as we bring them into this space today, I'd like to talk about these, these four Gospels and by extension, the place of the Scriptures. Because what our ancestors did when they did this, when they put them in the windows, is they are witnessing to us that the scriptures are at the core of what we do and surround every word that ought to be spoken in this place. Everything we do is rooted in the Bible. But how do they do that? What do the scriptures do? This is not an easy conversation today. Once upon a time, we used to assume everybody kind of knew the basic Bible stories and knew how to work them. That is no longer a reasonable assumption. And what do these symbols mean? 
So that's where I started. What are these symbols and why? I bet you didn't know, because I didn't know, that these symbols come from Scripture. Now, there is no place in Scripture where it says, this is the image of St. Luke. But there's not one, but two times where these four images appear in the Scriptures. The first time is Ezekiel. And we skip that Ezekiel reading, because Ezekiel is weird. Revelation is weird, too, but it's a tiny bit less weird. So I said, you know what, we'll start there. But I thought that fast. Wait, these, these things are in there twice, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament? That is interesting to me. And so I want to invite you into this Revelations reading. And you might even want to open up the Bible in front of you just to follow along for a little bit. But as we dive into Revelation, here's what you need to understand about it. Revelation, if you go to Revelation saying, what does God want me to do? That is about the worst place you can go. Revelation will not do that. Revelation is not a book of laws. Revelation is a mystical book. It is a book rooted in mysticism and prayer. And so in order to understand what Revelation is trying to do, you've got to have a, a very broad and creative mind. You have to hold it very loosely. Don't ask it to draw straight lines. It's not going to. But it will draw something beautiful. In the opening of our chapter today... St. John, and we know John wrote this, John the Apostle, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, the same guy who wrote the three letters of John, we know John wrote Revelation. And John, in this moment, the chapter opens, there, there a, a door in heaven stood open. And John is saying to us, I got a glimpse into heaven, y'all. He gets to glimpse in, not a whole bunch, I mean, you all have done this, like, what was going on there? He got a little bit of a glimpse, and he writes what he sees. I'll read it for you again. Around the throne are full of living creatures, full of eyes. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. Day and night without ceasing, they sing, holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Four creatures, wildly diverse and wonderful, it says that they are full of eyes, which is a little creepy, but again, roll with it. We're being mystical here. Full of eyes behind and front. They are all seeing. They can see into the past. They see into the future. With clarity of sight, they exist solely to praise the one who sits on the throne. And what is it that they sing? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. If those words sound a little familiar to you, they should. And when they sing, it tells us that the elders around the room, and we'll deal with that in a different sermon, but it said all the elders around the room, which I believe symbolizes the worshiping congregation around, it says when, when these four things sing, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, the elders fall before the one in worship. You are worthy, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. A little glimpse into heaven. But the ancient interpreters, like you and me, are like, going, wait, what? Like, what is going on here? But they spent time thinking deeply about it because they started from a place of deep reverence for the scriptures. They didn't say, this is, this is silly. They didn't say, I don't understand this, or John was just weird. They said, well, I'm going to sit with this for a little bit and figure out what we might be able to discern here because they believed God was speaking in this, even if they didn't understand what God was saying. And they started with the number four. They're like, four, that's interesting. Where else do we have four different things all doing the same thing? 
Where do we have four different things all doing the same thing? And as they thought about these four things, they started to creatively and playfully consider what these images might be. And that's when, again, with creativity and playfulness, they started assigning these four creatures to each of the Gospels because of the content of the four Gospels that we have. So we begin with Matthew, the divine man, they say. And they said, well, this makes sense because Matthew's gospel opens up not with the story of Jesus' birth. It opens up with the genealogy, Jesus' family. Where does Jesus come from? His human entry into the world. Therefore, we'll make him the man. The next one was Mark. They said the winged lion, or what Harry Potter fans might call a griffin. And there, this lion with wings, Mark doesn't open with a genealogy or a birth story. Mark opens up by saying, the prophet Isaiah says, screams, a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And they interpret that as a growl, the guttural growl, the king of the jungle. They said, the lion's going to be Mark. Luke. Luke, they said, is an ox. Like an ox. And any of us who work with cattle know that's not always representative of what the Gospels are all about. But nevertheless, they said oxen were used in temple sacrifices. And Luke begins, again, not with a genealogy, not with a prophet, not with, not with a birth story. Luke opens up with the priest Zechariah, whose responsibility it was to, to sacrifice the fatted calf on behalf of the sins of the nation. That's where Luke starts. And Zechariah becomes the father of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the one who prepares the way of the Lord for Jesus. And then finally, John, the rising eagle. And John doesn't begin with any of those things. John begins, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John begins with his lofty prologue, his theological prologue. And John's gospel is filled with these I am statements. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine, you are the branches. And John's theology invites us to look upward and soars like an eagle. Four Gospels, four different perspectives on the exact same story. But if you read them, they're not identical. Jeez, I got If you read the Gospels, you will discover that they are not identical. Oops, get that sorted out. There we go. Yeah, what is that sound? We good. Each of, none of these Gospels mirror the other. They borrow from others, but none of them are identical. Each of them have quirk that quirks. They put things in. They take things out. One of the things that frustrates me most about the Gospels is that my favorite Gospel, John, has no Eucharist in it. But that's because John puts the Eucharist through the entire thing. There is no time when Jesus actually does this like Last Supper thing. This is my bread. This is my body. Drives me nuts. The others have it. John doesn't. But together, they surround the throne of God. They are all seeing, and together they tell an encompassing story. They exist to praise God, and when their voice is heard, the congregation bows down and worships. This entire sequence, this peak into heaven, takes place right after Revelation's warning to the seven churches of Revelation. And if you've read Revelation, that might be a more familiar passage that you might be used to. John, just, John writes an individual letter to seven churches, and they are wide-ranging. They call, they, the calls vary from the serious. John says, you church, this particular church, you have lost your love for Christ, and he calls them on it. There are other times he's compassionate. He said, you, this congregation, you guys are going to go through some persecution. I want to strengthen you for that. 
There's other times where John writes to a sleepy church. He says, you guys are asleep at the wheel. What are you doing? And perhaps the most famous, he writes to one and says, you guys are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold, and God will spit you out of your mouth. John didn't mince words. John was very pointed. But he wrote these specific instructions to specific congregations. And then we get a peek behind the curtain into heaven. And the message is this. Congregation, whatever it is you are going through, Whatever your struggle, whether you're a great church or a terrible church, whether your heart is aflame with passion for Christ or your heart is dead for passion for Christ, whether this is the easiest time in the life of this church or the hardest time in the life of this church, whatever you are going through, you need to come back to this holy scene, this holy throne room where these four things scream out the praise of God. You need to re-engage, in other words, with these holy texts. In these windows, then, drawn from this mystical revelation text, We, St. Mary's, are called to put the scriptures at the core of what we do. But how do we do that? Because that can go wrong as as well as it can go right. And we live in an age where it goes wrong so much more than it goes right. And so we step back for a second. We consider the fact that these things are, in fact, stained glass. Most of you aren't in here at 5 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, like I regularly am. But in the winter, when the sun ain't up, windows ain't that pretty. You can see them, like you understand the artistry, but what you all appreciate when we walk in and the sun is up and it's bright and these windows pop and you're like, those are gorgeous, it's just not the same in the middle of January. I hope I'm not offending offending anybody with the windows, you know what I'm saying. But stained glass doesn't shine unless the sun does. And here's the thing. The Bible works the exact same way. Christ is here shining so very brightly, brighter than 10,000 suns, to the point where we can't look directly at it. We can't make sense of it. The story of God is too much for you and me. We don't have the capacity to know the story of God and Christ, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. We don't have that capacity. What we need is something to shape and to form that light into something that is life-changing. Something has got to help us make sense of it and give it to us in a way that we can digest it and live it. That's what stained glass windows do. Don't look directly at the sun, but the windows allow the sunlight to do its work that we might be inspired by beauty. So it is with the scriptures. The Bible makes the divine reality accessible and understandable so that we can take it in and we can process it. But it will only do that if we let the sun, if we let Jesus Christ shine behind them. And so in this way, let me say something very pointed about the Bible. I do mean to be provocative here for just a minute. The Bible on its own is not the word of God. (gasps) Wait. Wait, I'm coming to this. But hear me, the Bible on its own is not the word of God. Not primarily. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the word made flesh who dwelt among us. John tells us this. Jesus is the word of God, full stop. The Bible is is the word of God as much as it points us to the word of God who is Jesus. 
Hear that again. The Bible is the word of God to the extent that it points us to Jesus. And this is where I will step in and say every word of the Bible can point us to Jesus if we are wise and if we take the time to hear it. But but the windows aren't pretty until the sun shines through and the Bible will not come alive until the sun is shining in and through them. And that is where we have missed everything on the Bible in this generation. Because the minute it stops pointing us to Jesus, it stops being the word of God. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, I can. Because it happened this week. I'm going to speak pointedly to my brothers and sisters, not here, but in another place. This week, you might have heard about it. The Southern Baptists, these are my people, these people who raised me, all right, they decided that women cannot and should not ever be in the pulpit. They decided this by a 90% to 10% vote because it's written in Timothy. Paul wrote these words. It's in the Bible. It's there. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. But that has nothing to do with Jesus, does it? We haven't talked about what Jesus does. If we let the, bi- if we let the sun shine behind these texts, what we discover is that on the day Jesus was resurrected, who was there? It was the women at the tomb. And who did Jesus tell to go proclaim the gospel first, that Jesus is alive? It was the women. If we, that is a passage that is illuminated by the sun and shines upon us. Right now, my brothers and sisters, and with a broken heart with me, are using this passage not as gospel, but as weapon. The gospel is never the gospel when it is weapon. But when the sun shines through the scriptures, it comes alive, and my life has been blessed by women from the day I was born who have proclaimed the gospel to me until this very day. That's my mom, that's my grandparents, that's the preachers, that's my colleagues. Today we give thanks for them. It's Father's Day too, I know. You're like, oh, he's talking about women. Go with me for a second. Because Jesus said, even Jesus said, I am over and above what it is you have read. Because the reason we read that gospel reading, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And so if the Bible brings us to heaven and brings us to the person of Jesus, then we have to be careful how we read it. Do we really want to walk into the throne room of heaven, look around and say, you know, I don't really like the look of the drapes. But that's what some of us do when we come to the scriptures. We're like, I like this, I don't like that. And when we do that, we put ourselves in judgment on these sacred texts. We put ourselves over them and we decide what it is that they mean. We try to create meaning out of them. But when we do that, we make ourselves the arbiters of truth. Oh, no, 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 no. But Hebrews another mystical book (laughs) says otherwise. Hebrews says this word of God, when Jesus is shining through the Bible and we're able to read that, he said the word of God is alive and active. It's not a dead book, it's alive. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even your dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It judges the attitudes of the heart. We don't read the Bible, the Bible reads us. We do not stand in judgment on the Bible. The Bible stands in a, in, a, in a wonderful, beautiful way. The Bible stands in judgment on us, and that judgment is also God loves you just as you are. 
It goes on, it says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything in scripture lays us bare so that God might do his work in us. Because, as Revelation poetically reminds us, the gospels have eyes in the front of their heads and in the back, just like our parents, right? The scriptures read us. And in doing so, they always beckon us, they call us, not to follow a bunch of rules that we found there. It invites us to follow Christ more deeply, more seriously, and more courageously. Keep coming is what it says. You're already in, the pre- you're already in heaven. You're already in the presence of the divine. Keep coming. Keep listening. Keep looking. The Bible is to be heard with the ears of the heart. And as the Bible beckons us, so do these windows. The windows beg of us, church, to fall back in love with the scriptures. In my experience, I've never seen a Christian whose heart was alive with God's presence who didn't also have a passion for what we find between these covers. Every time I've seen a life just blowing stuff out of the water, it's been because, wow, you know what? It's the story of Jesus and the entire story of salvation which just lights us, lights us up and enables our life to go do wonderful and beautiful things. And then in order for us to fall in love with the Bible, we have got to fall in love with Jesus first. Not just, what do I have to do to get to heaven? But how do I get to know Jesus? And when the Bible is opened and read faithfully with our eyes illuminated by the Son that is Christ, we enter the very throne room of heaven. And there, the King looks upon you and I. And the King reads you. You don't judge a king. The king looks at you, and the king breathes new life into us. It is, a, it is this community of witnesses represented in these four windows, proclaiming good news to us in community. So every time we open these scriptures in this space, we enter the throne room of heaven. Never let that get away. Never let that, we don't just, oh, there's a really long reading today. No, it is the word of God if it points us to Jesus. And when we hear those readings, our response should be the response that is in heaven at every moment. We bow down and cry out, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. That's what the Bible can do. had so much fun putting together last week's sermon about the place of the Bible inside of our faith. In fact, I had so much fun with it that I left a lot on the cutting room floor. There was a lot that didn't make it into the sermon. So I thought maybe we could double back on a couple of things that might be interesting to you as we try to figure out this relationship between Christ and the Bible. Just as a quick refresher, I said that the Bible on its own is not the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. And the Bible becomes the Word of God to the point that it points us back to Jesus. In fact, I want to keep going and say that Christ is so central to our understanding of the Bible that I want to suggest that our theology of Christ can inform our theology of the Scriptures. In fact, I'm going to say it has to. The way we understand Christ can and must inform the way that we think about Scriptures. But allow me to explain. So I want to start with the words of Walter Brueggemann. 
And if you have not read anything by Walter Brueggemann, you need to spend some time with him. He is one of our most important contemporary theologians. He's also an ordained minister, and to my mind, one of the best minds in the United Church of Christ. He is one of our own. And he makes the claim that Christianity today has two equal and opposite problems when it comes to the scriptures. He writes, The numbing impact of Enlightenment rationality on our view of the Bible has left us with the toxic options of progressive liberalism and reactionary fundamentalism neither of which can allow the biblical text its proper work of wonder and deconstruction. Let me explain a little bit what he's talking about here. The Enlightenment sought to use reason as the barometer of understanding, and religion couldn't help but be shaped by this. It was in the air, and religion and religious people were absorbing it and kind of thinking about their own faith in the context of reason. But rationalism left us with two basic options when it comes to our sacred texts. On the one hand, it sought to impose scientific reason on a text to such an extent that what happens is that reason starts to tear the Bible into such small bits that it cannot speak a full message of God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. And so it would say, well, we're not sure this is true. We're not sure Jesus said that. And we're not sure this happened. And we have all these different textual variants. And so we can't believe any of them. And so it just kind of kept tearing at it to the point where it, where the followers just kind of said, well, if we can't trust the Bible, we don't know what the Bible is doing. Well, then who cares? On the other end, there were those who saw, who saw the destructive capacity of reason and started to reject reason entirely. And it sort of allowed the Bible its own internal logic without any connection to real life. And so it it leads us to places like, well, it says that Methuselah was 600 years old, so people must have lived 600 years old back then. There's stuff in there about slavery, and so slavery must be a good idea. And that is insane. That is absurd. And you can see how both progressive liberalism and reactionary fundamentalism neither will give life. So what we need to do is not to seek a middle ground. Because if we seek a middle ground, we're still on the spectrum of this sort of left-right or progressive versus conservative spectrum. As long as we find ourselves on that spectrum, we're going to find ourselves ending up in one place or another, and neither will give life. No, we have to seek an entirely different way, separate from that destructive pattern. So instead of using reason exclusively, and by the way, Christianity is not opposed to reason, but what if we used, instead of reason, what if we used Jesus? And what if we used the idea of who and what we believe Jesus to be? And I think this is far more life-giving. So our ancient theologies, the things that have been passed down to us, teach us about something called the hypostatic union. And you're like, oh my gosh, we are, deep, we are deep diving. Yes, we are. The hypostatic union was one of the critical outcomes of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. What is the hypostatic union? The church was trying to figure out who is Jesus? Like, it's a really important question, right? Who is Jesus? And they said, on the one hand, we can see Jesus doing all these things that are godlike. And on the other hand, we can see Jesus doing all these things that are very human. How do we reconcile these things? And ultimately, the answer at Chalcedon 
was that Jesus has a hypostatic union, two natures, but one person. That Jesus is fully human and fully God. Now, let me be clear about this. Not half human, half God, but that Jesus has two completely different natures inside, the, inside of one person. Fully human, fully God. And you're like, why? What difference does this make? Well, very quickly, it is critical for salvation. If Jesus is only God, then Jesus can't experience us. He can't live. He can't empathize. He doesn't understand hunger. He doesn't understand want. He doesn't understand loss. And if Jesus isn't, isn't human, if Jesus is only God, then ultimately he can't die. But if Jesus is just a human, then Jesus needs saving. Jesus can't save us if he is one of us. Only God can save. And more fully to the point, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humankind, the man Jesus Christ. And this gets at the point of the hypostatic union. In order to bridge the gap between God and humanity, to bring about salvation, we need a Savior who is both God and human. And that is Jesus. Fully God, fully human at the same time. And so it is with the Bible. The Bible is a fully divine document. Going back to Timothy, chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. This means that in the words of Scripture, we can find the voice of God, which means that all Scripture should be reverenced, honored, cherished, and treated as the very divine word that it is. But at the same time, the scriptures are also fully human. And so if we go diving in, newsflash to a lot of us, there are going to be contradictions and historical errors and opposing viewpoints and differing stories. The four gospels do not line up because it is exactly how you and I would tell the story. We are human which means that we are allowed to examine the scriptures, pull it apart, ask questions, sometimes say that is not as relevant as these other things. Why does it have to be both? Because just like Jesus, it must have the power to save. It must turn our eyes towards Christ. It has to be divine. But it also must show us that God is alive and active and powerful, even in and amongst our limitations. In these human words, the divine word is heard in the depths of our soul. When the Bible is fully human and fully divine, it has the power to speak the word of God into human life and to change human lives. And so if we can wrap our minds around that and start to understand the Bible is fully divine and fully human, then we will be well on our way to a healthier relationship with the scriptures fully human, addressing us where we're at, and fully divine, driving our lives towards God's intentions, the kingdom that Jesus Christ is bringing. And it can do both those things at the same time. And so I leave that with you as you head out to read the scriptures this week. And we want to invite you to do that. I haven't invited you in a while. But every week in our bulletin, we print daily readings. 
Is there anything special about these readings? Absolutely not. It's simply a schedule of readings that we go through together to come into contact with the story of Jesus and the story of the people who are trying to follow him best. And if this is a fully divine word, then every word that we read has the power to change us. We invite you into that process. Pull up the daily readings and just join us in reading these things through day by day. And ask God to bless that reading. Say, God, I don't know what you're trying to do in me, but do something great. And over time, over these rhythms, God will shape our hearts into the people that he has called us to be. So you're invited to join that process. And if you're brand new and want to talk about it, please holler at me. Nothing makes me more joyful than talking about prayer and scripture with people who are trying to follow after Jesus. You're invited to do that. So friends, as you engage the scriptures and as you grow in your faith this week, may you know God's peace and good. Thanks so much. We'll see you all in the space next week.